Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi there and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, The Band-Aid Solution Edition. I'm your host, Sarah O'Donnell, and it is a hazy, rainy July 17th, 2014, but here in our smoke-free newsroom studio to walk us through some of the highlights of the last seven days in Alberta politics are columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. Provincial Affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. And health reporter Keith Gerine. Hi there. Who I will add will be filling in as host on the podcast in a couple of weeks when I head off on vacation. Very exciting. Early yeah. August. So you get you will get to hear more of his uh, his excellent radio voice. But this week, some serious issues to discuss. Alberta's legal aid system has long been short on funds. Has it moved from just being a tight budget to crisis? And then, just how much deferred maintenance is there at Alberta's hospitals? And is anyone talking about those repairs in crisis terms? Let's start in the courts. For months now, we've been hearing some serious concerns from the legal community about the state of legal aid, a program that serves low-income Albertans. What exactly is going on here? Well, they have been uh, suffering from a uh, or dealing with a funding crunch for the last few years. Uh, Essentially, what's happened is legal aid receives funding from the provincial and federal governments, and that has remained relatively static over the past five years. And so what that's forced them to do is, uh, you know, dealing dealing with sort of a a finite um, amount of money, they've had to more strictly enforce their eligibility guidelines which means that some of the poorest people in the province no longer qualify for legal aid, which uh, it should be said is an, an organization that gives people who can't afford a lawyer, uh, you know, at a regular rate, a discounted lawyer. Uh, certainly not free. I think sometimes people believe that a legal aid lawyer is free, and that's not the case. No, and I think oftentimes people assume that, as in the United States, if you watch a lot of law and order, you know, that there's a public a defender who's appointed. That's not the way it works in Alberta. Everyone is not guaranteed legal counsel. And as, as Miriam is suggesting, legal aid funding is so tight right now that sometimes even people who are on AISH, the assured uh, income for severely handicapped, the provincial pension, are deemed to have too much income to qualify. Mm. And that should be said, it's uh, $1,588. That makes you too rich, basically, to uh, qualify for a discounted lawyer through legal aid. So wow. they've been they've been dealing with this. Their eligibility cutoff is actually uh, quite a bit under that. I think it's just over $1,300. Um, so they've been dealing with this for um, quite a while. And, and so, you know, the, the opposition's been making a lot of noise on this, but the, the province has said, well, we're contributing our share. It's the feds that aren't. But there's another element here, which is the share that goes in from the lawyers. Traditionally, legal aid had three streams of funding, federal, provincial, and money that came from the interest that was earned on lawyers' trust accounts. Mm -hmm. To understand this, I mean, if you're giving your lawyer money for a transaction and he's holding it in trust, it's going to earn interest. But the interest isn't the lawyer's because he's holding the money in trust for clients. So traditionally, what the lawyers did with the interest that they earned on their trust accounts was to put it into the legal aid kitty. 
The problem is that interest rates right now are at about 1%. Um, you know, back when interest rates were 16%, uh, this was a generous income stream. And now that income stream is greatly reduced. And at the same time, the federal government, while provincial funding has been static, the feds actually cut their funding for some forms of, of legal aid transfer, especially for uh, Im- immigration and refugee matters. Right. I think last year the provincial government actually gave legal aid a one-time boost. They had some surplus funds, but this year it's gone back to that. So this week, I know that in April was when it first came to light that legal aid was having to tell people on AISH, I'm sorry, your income is $40 too high to meet our uh, threshold. And so that was that's when this really came to my attention. But this week, things have they gone from bad to worse or are they just still the same but there have been some changes well they're doing they've done some um restructuring and it, and and it is in an effort to save money they also say that it serves the way mo- most clients use their services so what they're doing is they're closing drop-in centers in seven places around the province places like grand prairie and saint paul um and so what that means is uh a loss of 35 jobs, but they're creating 16 new ones in an expanded call center in Edmonton. Um, you know where they where they take calls from people who who need a legal aid lawyer, and that's going to save them about four million dollars over the next three years. But that still leaves them with a, a major deficit um, of about 15 million. And there's and there's one more complicating factor, which is that in a very serious case, the judge in a court of Queen's bench uh, criminal trial can order legal aid to provide representation, even to somebody who may earn more than the income threshold. And so legal aid can't just turn people down. Uh, In some cases, a judge gives an order that requires them to pay. And the number of such orders has gone up a great deal in the last uh, 12 months as well. And it's not like they get an extra pool of money for that. It's not like the province says, okay, well, the courts have ordered you to provide a lawyer and now here's some corresponding money to help you fund that. There's one pool of money that they can work with here. And so that cuts into that and means that uh, someone else who might need a lawyer uh, for maybe a case that isn't as serious and wouldn't have such an order maybe won't get access to one. I have to ask, do you think that most Albertans care or should care either way about whether legal aid should be funded. I mean, this is, you know, people who end up in the court system for whatever reason. Is it really the government's job to make sure they get legal representation? Well, you know, however unsympathetic you may be towards criminals, practically speaking, there's a really good public policy reason that you don't want your court system to jam up uh, like you know, like a clogged pipe. When people can't get legal representation, they still go into court and they represent themselves. And anybody who's covered a trial where someone is self-representing or been involved in a trial where someone is self-representing can tell you that that is usually the proverbial gong show. It creates huge backlogs in the court. It's very tiresome for anybody who's involved in the proceedings. And so giving people proper representation, whatever you believe about, oh, the Constitution and right to counsel, uh, there are really good pragmatic reasons why when people are self-represented, things get into a horrible mess. But leaving aside the practicalities, I mean, if people can't get representation when they're charged with something very serious, that is, I think, arguably an abridgment of their fundamental constitutional right. I mean, when you go into court charged with murder, you can't be expected to defend yourself. I mean, you have to have proper counsel or the whole justice system becomes a joke, it becomes a farce. And so if we're not willing to fund 
one of the fundamental touchstones of an open democratic society. What kind of province are we? Well, and I, the, you know, the opposition has um, brought up the, the point that an increase in the number of people uh, representing themselves in court could also lead to an increase in the number of appeals or mistrials. Um, and so, uh, interestingly, this week, the Auditor General's office uh, confirmed that they're going to be investigating the effects of unfunded legal aid needs. Why did they decide to do that? Why are they stepping into this? Well, well Rachel, Rachel Notley, Rachel the Notley asked them to. asked them to last month, but they were already identifying this as an issue that needed attention. Um, however, uh, her the letter that she wrote really talked about, um, you know, the effect of people who uh, the effect of an increase in people representing themselves in court and what that would what that will do to the courts in the long term and whether that will ultimately um, lead to the province spending more money on the court system instead of um, um, contributing to one that works more uh, efficiently um, and in the best interests of, of everybody really involved um, and so but that audit won't they haven't really determined the scope of it how big it is what the time frame is going to be it's probably not going to go forward until the end of this year if not next year so um that'll still be a long ways away but i think it is interesting that he his office um merwin Sahar's office ha- had already sort of identified that as an issue that needed attention keith when you've covered the ledge over the years is this something that has come up i mean is this like just something that we're hearing about in 2013-14 or is this something you heard about in question period over the years too? It has come up from time to time but not to this degree um, and I think finally when we got some numbers uh, recently that's really um, crystallized it for a lot of people as a, as a big issue that does need to be resolved. Up until recently I, I really did I thought it did operate like that there was a whole group of legal aid lawyers I guess kind of like American public defenders but I've learned that that's just not correct. No so. we all watch too much law and order. <laughs> we do. Although I don't know can you ever watch enough <laughs> law and order? No, no, I think you I can. Well, let's go from the mountain of legal fees to the mountain of repairs that seem to be piling up at Alberta hospitals. So why were Alberta hospitals back in the news this week and not, I mean, they do all kinds of good things all the time saving lives, but why were they, you know, a subject of discussion at the legislature this week? Um, the Liberals had, uh, through Freedom of Information legislation, um, got access to a document showing all of the totals of deferred maintenance for health facilities across the province. Uh, it amounted to $637 million in deferred maintenance. Um, and it, there was a couple of hundred facilities on that list. Um, but the interesting part about it was the disproportionate amount of deferred maintenance for facili- for facilities and hospitals in Edmonton. Uh, about 40% of that $637 million total um, was for maintenance in Edmonton area. Uh, facilities. So that was about $252 million worth. Um, so really disproportionate. And and in fact, there was a top 10 list that the Liberals had created of the hospitals around the province that needed um, the most amount of work. And five out of the 10 were hospitals in Edmonton. Look, I think we all have deferred maintenance on our homes, for example, maybe <laughs> shingles that we're putting off repairing or, you know, a new, new bedroom carpeting that's just going to have to wait for a while after that bathroom plumbing flood but so is it really something that we should be concerned about that hospitals have deferred maintenance i would expect them to have you know a backlog of repairs and things that need to be fixed yeah well i, I mean any public building is going to have deferred maintenance over time but there, there is some reason to be concerned here and there, there's a, there's a couple of things i've looked through some of the facility condition reports um, the government posts them online on the alberta infrastructure website 
and you go through them and there's a lot of different kinds of things there's electrical issues there's plumbing issues there's sewage issues um, yeah. and Wainwright that that hospital really needs to be replaced faulty elevators heating systems and so on uh, a remarkably large number of fire code uh, yes. or fire uh, alarm or fire sprinkler system things that are not up to code or not right um, which is kind of concerning uh, and the big problem with these is a lot of these hospitals were put up in the 1970s and the 1980s during the Peter Lougheed era when we built all kinds of hospitals in all kinds of communities across the province they're now getting to be about 30 40 years old which is about the average lifespan of a public building a lot of them are starting to fall apart and it's up to the government to decide whether to put in the money to fix them up and extend their life another 10, 20 years to replace them, or perhaps even to start shutting some of them down. And that's for the rural hospitals in Edmonton. Yeah. I mean, the two in Edmonton that are, I think, in the most trouble everybody recognizes, and it's confirmed in these latest documents, are the Misericordia in West Edmonton and the General downtown, both of which have colossal, disastrous deferred maintenance issues, the kind of which, you know, could eventually... Um, lead to lead to you know deaths uh, of of patients who are in those facilities. The question becomes, you know, if there's forty five million dollars of deferred maintenance maintenance at the Misericordia, they had a major flood uh, last week. They had a major flood last year. It's a smallish hospital. The population of West Edmonton is so much bigger than it was when that hospital opened in nineteen sixty nine. Do you spend $50 million to update the Misericordia Hospital? Or do you build a new one like the South Calgary Health Campus, which came in at a... $1.3 billion. $1.3 billion. So that was, you know, that's the going rate for wow. a new, for that's a new like hospital. that's like 1 40th of the provincial budget for right. the year. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, when I spoke to Fred Horn about this last week, um, he said to me, Yes, it's true. The focus has been on Calgary. The focus needs to shift to Edmonton. Our number one priority is a new hospital for Southwest Edmonton. Uh, and I'm going to try and do something about that. But, uh, you know, in the meantime, it's fine to say, well, maybe in five or six years, we'll get a spanky new hospital in Southwest Edmonton. What do we do with the Misericordia in the meantime. Yeah, and there is no money in the, the three-year capital plan for the Misericordia at this point. So uh, we are looking at least at that time frame to, to any, even get it started. Is there any explanation as to why Edmonton fell behind while Calgary was pushed ahead? And was it like this when it was Capital Health versus the Calgary Health regions? Would this have happened? Or was this already happening as under the regional health systems, or is this an AHS thing? It's a really good question. A, a lot of this comes down to politics. Uh, I can tell you AHS every year uh, puts in their priority list of what they think needs to be done in the province for health facilities, but the province doesn't have to go by that list. They can decide themselves oh, what they want. Oh, is it like the schools where they can make their recommendations, but ultimately right. it's Albert Education that gets to decide which school project is a priority? That's right. So why Calgary or the rural areas got precedence for a while, we don't know. Um, it certainly <laughs> has... <laughs> we can guess. We, we can guess. Uh, it has certainly been spoken in, in, in rumors and circles that Edmonton has been hard done by in recent years. The numbers that the Liberals received does seem to reinforce that. Um, I can tell you, for example, that besides the Calgary Hospital, there's been new, uh, new hospitals being put up in Edson, in High Prairie. Uh, Medicine Hat and Lethbridge have gotten a lot of work. Grand Prairie's getting a new hospital. So it has been a while before Edmund, for Edmonton. But... I think it also has to be said, when it comes to deferred maintenance, that politicians of all stripes and at all levels rather 
prefer to open shiny new things than to fix up old things. And so, yes, Edmonton may have the larger deferred maintenance budget, but Capital Health in the olden days decided to build the Edmonton Clinic, which was a hugely expensive project. It built the Mazankowski Heart Institute. It built the new um, uh, Eastwood Health Center uh, in central Edmonton. And there's a new... um, I don't know. It's not what we don't call it a hospital. A, a urgent uh, care center. An, an urgent care center, a nicely or well term. And don't and don't forget the Sherwood Park yes, Hospital. That's, yeah, the urgent care. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and the, yeah, so yeah. It, so it's not that, you know, it's not that Edmonton got nothing. You can have an argument about whether building a cardiac, a world class leading cardiac center, which is a good thing if your dad's going to have a heart attack, um, whether that's a better use for your money than fixing the roof at the general hospital. Um, I think prudently, uh, you need to do both. You can't just keep buying shiny new things. You also need to fix up the the infrastructure that you've inherited. What did the liberals have to say about this? Because they had the, the, the news conference about the freedom of information request. What was their take on it? And did would they just, did they say like, look, this just has to, we have to spend money on this? Or well, what's their antidote, well, prescription? Um, yeah, I mean... Uh, Ross Sherman's um, was talking about, you know, restructuring the way the province sp- spends on health and, and overall and restructuring the, the tax system and all of that kind of stuff. But in terms of this, you know, the argument is if you don't get out in front of this now, it's going to be too late. Um, and, you know, a lot a lot of critics point to the Misericordia as an example. You know, you put off lots of maintenance there and now you're dealing with floods every six to eight months. Um, and so... Uh, you know, it's 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 more for them. It's more a question of if you don't do it now, when are you going to do it? And are you just digging yourself a deeper and deeper hole by not keeping up with the maintenance that you need to? Is the footprint of the Miz big enough that you could just let's say knock it down and rebuild on that site, or do they that, have to go to a greenfield? No, site? no that's no. that is in fact what Covenant Health, which operates the hospital, uh, would like to do. They would like to tear down the sort of the high-rise tower, the bed tower, as they call it, of the hospital, and redevelop on the footprint. It's it's, it's a pretty good piece, sized piece of land. There's space behind it, right? Yeah, there's space behind it. There's green space behind it. That I do not think is Fred Horn's preferred option. Um, and it's a, you can, you can sort of look at it from two perspectives. Covenant says, this is a great location. It's right by West Edmonton Mall, right by the Henday and the White Mud. And the LRT. And the LRT coming there. Um, other people would say, that's the very reason it shouldn't be there because it's too congested and too hard to get into because there's too much traffic in that area. Um, and with all of the major new development in the southwest of Edmonton, I think Fred Horn is thinking more of a greenfield site considerably further south than the Misericordia. But I think it's hard for people who, you know, don't, and I would just like to say that I don't really remember 1969 very well. I was on the planet Earth, but I was very young. Uh, but when that hospital opened, there was no West Edmonton Mall. There was no, you know, Edmonton ended effectively. No where, Lewis where, Estates. Where yeah. the Misericordia was. And so when you think about how much the city has grown up around it, I think there is a, there's an interesting argument to be made that maybe you do want a greenfield site uh, not in such a congested area. The other advantage of that, of course, is you can keep the Misericordia open and still seeing patients while the new hospital is being built, which is, it's going to be more difficult if you try to build on the same site. As health reporter, are you expecting this to come up much in the leadership debate? I've actually been really surprised about how little, uh, the PC leadership, about how little health care has come up other than the issue of boards. Like, should there be a board or not a board? I thought, oh no, not again. Yeah, I, I am a little surprised and a little disappointed, actually. I, I had 
and uh, I think this is a major issue. How are these leadership candidates, how do they propose to deal with this really big and growing backlog of health infrastructure, deferred maintenance, uh, the growing population, and, and what they're going to need in the future? Uh, and even the opposition parties, honestly, have not given answers to those questions yet either. The Liberals started to a little bit this week. But uh, I think that's a major, major question that has to go forward for both the leadership candidates and for all the parties coming into the next election. Oh, health care premiums, anybody? <laughs> no, no, no one wants to go there. I don't think anybody's going that way. All right. Well, if we've come up, if we, if we, if we have temporarily put a Band-Aid on that topic, <laughs> all is good. We'll move on then. A tourniquet, I think. That's might a be tourniquet, more. yeah. <laughs> oh, <gosh>. Sutures. <laughs> Let's move to good stuff from the gallery. I'm excited that this week we once again have a listener recommendation. This one comes from Amanda Wackerick. She's recommended a film and it's called The Internet's Own Boy. So this is a film about a computer programmer, writer, political organizer, and internet activist Aaron Schwartz. He's an American. She said Aaron believed in the importance of democracy and democratic access to publicly funded information. And she suggested it because that's a topic that comes up on our podcast frequently. So there's an Internet Archive uh, summary of the film, and it talks about how this features interviews with his family and friends, as well as Internet luminaries who worked with him. And the film tells his story up to his eventual suicide after a legal battle and explores the questions of access to information and civil liberties that drove his work. I haven't had a chance to watch this yet, but I think that sounds like a really interesting recommendation and definitely does fit with some of the themes we regularly talk about. So thank you so much for that suggestion, Amanda. We had another recommendation too, but I'm going to keep that in my back pocket for next week. And for all our listeners, if you have Good Stuff recommendations, submit them through our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash the press gallery, or tweet them to me at SC O'Donnell. Who would like to go with their uh, recommendation? Paula? Well, you complained last week that our recommendations weren't sexy enough, so I have a sexy recommendation for you. Um, uh, How dare I complain? <laughs> that sounds so awful of me. But uh, yeah, you're right. It probably did. Yes. So this is not this is not boring. This is not. I'm not telling people to read the Auditor General's report about gravel. Uh, I'm going to tell people that uh, they may recall that last week I wrote a column about uh, sexual education in our high schools and whether it was appropriate for a Christian-based evangelical organization to be teaching abstinence-only classes. Uh, in honor of this, uh, a, a friend of mine sent me a link to a wonderful sketch by East India Comedy, which is sort of the Indian version of, of Codco, or This Hour Has 22 Minutes. And it is a screamingly funny sketch about sex education in India, where the health minister there, who is a doctor, has banned the teaching of sex education to replace it with yoga class. Mm. Um, and this is seven minutes of social satire <laughs> that is uh, it's, it's most of it is in English. The parts that's not in English, they have subtitles. Um, it is very funny, um, and it certainly indicates that Alberta doesn't have a lock on stupidity when it comes to teaching sex education, <laughs> and that no religion has a monopoly on absurdity. I, so I, I suspect this is a topic that has worldwide. Uh, I, yes, so, so, I, so I, humor. I, I highly recommend, although I, I don't really recommend that you watch it in the office in case you laugh really loudly and people come to see <laughs> what you're watching. <laughs> okay, thanks, Paula. Um, why don't I just, I have one, and since Graham is not, he's, he's ill today, I'm going to, I thought I better recommend something that he would enjoy. So I'm channeling my uh, 
it, it, it your inner green warrior. That's right, exactly. So this is from Environment 360, which is a website put together by the Yale School of Environment and Forestry, I believe. And our former colleague, Ed Struzik, writes for them. So last week, I noticed that he had posted a story about the loss of the snowpack and the glaciers in the Rockies uh, posing a water threat. I, I think that lots of people know about this, but he's done a really great piece about this issue, about the, the shrinking of the glaciers and why that's a problem and why that will have consequences for us who and all of us in Alberta and anyone who relies on these glaciers for a goodly amount of our water. So I recommend that. It's called Loss of Snowpack and Glaciers in Rockies Poses Water Threat. And it's not, an, a, not a written report in the style that Graham so often loves, but it is a good piece of prose. Miriam, how about you? Um, today there's news that Senator Mike Duffy... Senator? Suspended... Well, his his lawyer keeps calling him Senator Mike Duffy, yeah. so I think I think out of courtesy, sure. we, we could go with Mike that for Duffy's another few minutes. Mike Duffy's been charged, we're learning today, 31 charges. Um, I was going to suggest a couple of Senate reads that have uh, nothing to do with that particular scandal. The first one is called Why We Can't Just Ignore the Senate and Hope It Goes Away by Emmett McFarlane, and that's um, on mcleans.ca. And um, the second is Brazen... Uh, Brazen Populism Can't Kill the Senate by Nick Taylor Vasey. And basically, they're both just talking about this argument that, um, you know, if Harper or whoever replaces him um, just stops appointing senators, the Senate will go away because there will no longer be any senators to occupy it or, you know, there won't be any, uh, they won't be able to make quorum. Um, And both of them sort of just talk about the um, fallacies of that argument and uh, why there are um, constitutional arguments for why that really can't happen um you know namely that you need a certain number of senators to sit on parliamentary committees that there's this thing called parliamentary convention all that sort of stuff so anyway i thought they were um interesting they're both shortish so you could probably read them both pretty quickly oh you're gonna make me care about the senate again (laughs) (laughs) but but i I thought it was very admirable that you restrained yourself and did not recommend mclean's piece on mike duffy's alleged love child i well you went with the sexy route this week i decided probably everyone has already seen that story but if you haven't Go for it. So many things to talk about the Senate. (laughs) Who knew it was so interesting? And with that, it is time to extinguish this week's episode. Oh, forest fire puns aren't good. For more, you can check out edmontonjournal.com to find a video excerpt or two from our show, compiled this week by journal videographer Mac Lamaru. Thanks, Mac. If you've missed an episode of the podcast or just want to load up your device with hours of the press gallery, as I mentioned last week, you can do so on the journal's website in the op-ed section or on iTunes search the press gallery subscribe we could use some more comments i'd like to see it you know pop up again a little higher in the searches that would be fantastic you can also find us on edmonton journal soundcloud feed facebook.com slash the press gallery is our facebook presence and that is it for this week please join us again next week in the press gallery